Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my guest host, Claire Biddles. Hi! So this week we are discussing the 2001 erotic psychodrama by Michael Haneke, The Piano Teacher, starring Isabelle Lepere as an elite piano teacher who embarks on a toxic, sadomasochistic affair with one of her students. So in keeping with our podcast's title, I have been asking our guest hosts for kind of recommendations for films that they find really interesting. And this was one of your picks. Yes. Um, I'm very intrigued. I was watching it for the first time. I expect you to be far more of an expert this time around than I was. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I enjoyed this film, but it was very (laughs) impressive. (laughs) It's not like a fun one. (laughs) I was just saying to Gab before we started recording that I was re-watching it today and I've seen it loads of times before, but I was re-watching it today and I was like, I love this film and it's like one of my favourite films, but should I get other people to watch it? <laughs> I don't know. I think I've only ever really watched it by myself. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's see what you think. You see, I've never seen a Haneke film before. Oh, interesting. In okay. part because he hasn't had a film out since like 2017 so there haven't been any in theatres that are like you must watch this and partly because he has this reputation for these very intense Mm -hmm. realistic Mm -hmm. psychologically dark films but like not dark in a fun way there's rarely a time when I personally am like it's time to sit back and relax (laughs) whereas I think your tastes kind of skew more toward this kind of cinema a bit yeah but it is very good and Isabel is of course (laughs) A genius. <sighs> Top notch. Maybe my favourite Isabel performance, but we'll get to it. <laughs> so Michael Haneke is a Austrian director. And every, I'll just say at this point that every Austrian film that I've ever seen has been really bleak. So something, something going on there. So he's sort of a big can guy. He's won the Palme d'Or, I think, twice. Won for the White Ribbon. He, I think, also won for Amour. And his other films that are sort of more well-known are Funny Games, um, which he originally made in 1997 in German and then remade it, a shot-for-shot remake in English, a kind of American version, uh, 10 years later with Naomi Watts, Michael Pitt. So, like, quite sort of an unusual move. He's also known for, I think his film Caché, which is got Juliette Binoche in it. He tends to work with very prestigious actresses, which also are just like the kind of actresses that are like very much my type of actress. So like works a lot with Isabelle Huppert, um, who's also in another couple of his films, Juliette Binoche, and those kind of actresses who can real who are known for really kind of digging into a role. His most recent film is Happy End, which I didn't like very much, but is quite typical of his films, which are a quite tragic comic, but leaning very, very heavy on the tragedy rather than the comic, and often about sort of fucked up family dynamics. A lot about like European history, but like the dark sides of European history. Um, his film The White Ribbon is very much like that as well. So this particular film the piano teacher is also kind of about a fucked up family but also it's more of a kind of psychological drama 
and it's based on a novel by, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, Elfrida Jelenic, which is also known for being like a very kind of fucked up novel. <laughs> and I've not read it, but I'd really like to read it. Nobel Prize winner. Yes. <laughs> yes. So Isabella Per, as we have discussed already, iconic French actress, now 70 years old, has just won every prize and is basically just enormously celebrated. I'm sure I've seen her in several things, but the thing that like immediately springs to mind is Elle, which yeah. came out a few years ago and is also mm-hmm. like this, a film that's about sort of like a warped sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, in a different way but like she is known for doing really intense roles and also being intense and terrifying in real life yeah. <laughs> she's also really good on instagram just to uh, give the listeners a tip i'm not on insta so i guess i i wouldn't know that um but yeah the other lead actor is a guy named benoit magimel who I actually had not heard of, but I'm sure I've seen him and stuff, unless he just has an incredibly French face, because I was like, this guy looks very familiar. (laughs) He already was an established actor because he was a child actor, but in this, um, the relationship is between Isabel's character, Erica, and Benoit's character, Walter, or possibly Walter. There's like a 20-year age gap between them, because she's meant to be, you know, around 40 or mid-40s, and he is in his early 20s. But he doesn't appear for the first section of the film, She is introduced in this sort of long character study where we learn about her relationship with her mother, which is very toxic. They live in this small apartment in Vienna and Erica, the protagonist, has this very prestigious but clearly not very well paid job as a piano teacher in a Viennese music school. Vienna obviously being kind of the world capital of classical music and classical music training. And she shares a bed with her mother. They have like one of those double beds that like kind of stick, two beds that stick together. And her mother is policing her shopping very obsessively. So we immediately know from the get-go that Erica has got this very unpleasant home life where her freedom is completely curtailed. And also her job is this sort of relic of a bygone era because she's got this extremely perfectionist attitude toward teaching her students piano, which you'd expect because they are very accomplished young musicians who are hoping to go professional. And also she's got this very sort of frumpy persona. So the way they've styled Isabel is she's wearing a lot of kind of beige, no makeup, very severe, almost looking much older than she actually is Mm -hmm, for like mm -hmm. a woman who is quite youthful and beautiful. Obviously she's an actress, so of course she's beautiful. And then once she comes into contact with Walter, one of her upcoming students, it kind of throws her life into chaos because he is her sort of opposite number. He's got all this boyish energy. He's an athlete. He's very confident and brash in a slightly obnoxious way. But even before that happens, we know that there is a lot going on and going wrong with Erica's (laughs) psychosexual personal life. You know, she is she's mutilating herself in the bath. She has this habit of visiting sex shops because obviously this is, the film was, came out in 2001, but the novel was about 10 or 15 years old. So this is a pre-internet era kind of narrative. So she's visiting sex shops to watch porn on a kind of vending machine. And also she is voyeuristically going to drive-ins to watch young people have sex and then like piss on their cars. So, so there's this old. contrast between <laughs> the way she presents herself to the world, which is very severe and frumpy and kind of middle-aged and controlled. And the fact that she has this private masturbatory sex life 
which is clearly quite like damaging. It's not sort of like she's self-aware about being into BDSM and it's all very healthy. It's like, oh, this person's really messed up. And because the film all takes place over the course of quite a short period of time in the present day, we can only really infer what kind of formative experiences might have led her to be in this way. Because we know all about her relationship with her mother, but we don't really know about her father or her childhood. Like we can guess that once upon a time she probably wanted to be a concert pianist and her mother was maybe a stage parent and were exposed to a lot of stage parents who are like pressuring their kids who are her students. And we know that her father was in a mental institution because it's mentioned once. But otherwise she's got this very kind of complex characterization that is all coming through in the performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the performance is like the heart of the film, really. Everything that Isabelle Huppert does well is in this performance. It works really well with Haneke's style of direction as well, because he often kind of holds the camera on people and scenes for sort of too long, so it's kind of uncomfortably long, so it kind of cycles through naturally different emotions and reactions to the same scene that you're being shown. And her way of showing you a lot of complex and conflicting emotions in her face and in her body movements but very very slight movements and slight changes in expression works really well I think with that style of direction. There's a bit early on where she's kind of watching it's the first time that the guy that she's teaching who she has the affair with it's the first time that she sees him playing or maybe the second time at the academy and you're watching her face the whole time while he's playing and she's you can see all this like all these different emotions come up on her face and it really reminded me of the canon of great actresses watching music being played (laughs) um, which I want to make make a super cut I'm sure it already exists but like Nicole Kidman in birth the end of Margaret it's one of my favourite situations to put somebody in and see how, see what they do with it. And she just absolutely blows it apart. It's incredible. And also there's so much of her performance where, because the character is so restrained and restricted, she doesn't have a lot of expression, but there's yeah. so much coming through in her eyes. Yeah. And in books, it's so easy to kind of talk about how the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. But Obviously kind of a trite cliche, but it's incredibly difficult to act with your eyes as an actor, you know. And there are just some performers who are kind of bringing their A-game and are absolutely incredible at micro-expressions that you may not even notice consciously or Mm -hmm. being able to direct their eye in a very precise way so you know what they're Mm -hmm. looking at and what they're thinking. And she is really doing that in this because there's this character who is both so extreme and so restrained at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're totally right about the what she puts through in her eyes. It really reminds me of one of my other favourite moments. When their affair starts, she gives him a long letter about that describes exactly what she wants him to do to her in a kind of BDSM scenario. And she gets him to read it aloud to her. And after he's finished, she looks at him and there's this one moment where like the rest of the time she acts like she's completely in control and whether that's in this situation or whether it's in her job as a teacher and there's this one moment where her face goes or just her eyes go soft for like maybe about a second and a half and it's like the moment where she's letting herself think that maybe this could happen 
and that maybe or like letting him know or something that that she actually wants this and it's like this softness that is nowhere else in the performance but it's like it's an absolutely electric moment and it's like you say it's like entirely communicated through her eye contact yeah the dynamic between them is completely fascinating and unique there were parts of this film where i was thinking about the duke of burgundy which i love peter strickland's great erotic drama it's a kind of lesbian romance and it's very funny and it is about this dominant submissive relationship and it's essentially the opposite of this film in every way (laughs) (laughs) yeah thematically there's this kind of it it discusses like the push pull between someone who wants to be dominated and someone who's meant to be dominating them but maybe isn't very good at it but everything about that film is far more geared toward the eroticized aesthetics of BDSM Mm -hmm. and is very kind of romantic and sweeping and looks gorgeous and Mm. this film is very intentionally stripped back there's a lot of scenes that take place in very minimalist and unpleasant environments so Walter plays ice hockey so there's like a couple of ice hockey rink scenes there's Mm -hmm. scenes in cloakrooms and changing rooms there's a scene in a bathroom where they share their first kiss and there was a there was a moment before their first kiss that made me really made me think of it as like a sort of a clear moment and I don't know if you're going to (laughs) agree with me or if you were going to be like Gabby are you judging me but um (laughs) but like after so like after they've had a couple of encounters they meet first at a little private performance where both of them are playing the piano and they have this conversation about music and under other circumstances it might have been the start of a more romantic style of affair but she is very dismissive of him and is very dominating even though she secretly is a masochist who wants to be dominated herself and then their first kiss happens after he helps out at a concert where one of her students is performing and she sabotages that student by giving the student a horrible injury and then flees off to the bathroom and he follows her and very early on in this like basically not even a fair kind of affair they're like proclaiming each other's love to each other but she has locked herself in a cubicle of this bathroom and he just leaps into the cubicle with great <laughs> athleticism and I was like aha this to me is a kind of clear moment where there's this strapping young man leaping in to have this like warped sexual relationship with this piano teacher in a toilet. Did I call you right or did I call you wrong? Yes, I love that bit. <laughs> it's really, he's, yeah, he's really jockish, which was a very amusing note to yeah. me. Also, I was like, wow, wasn't expecting there to be my favorite sport, ice hockey in this film. Oh my God. <laughs> I like, I almost hadn't, obviously I remembered that he played ice hockey, but I had just hadn't made the connection until I watched it and I was like oh my god really want the ice hockey opinion on this yeah. <laughs> it's just very it's just very funny because it's like a very specific type of jock and also I guess I mean they're in Austria so like it makes a bit more sense than if it had been a yeah. French film obviously even though it's yeah. like in French but yeah there's this contrast between them because he feels very much just like a normal young man who clearly Mm. has not had a very difficult life. He's good looking, he's charming, he's very socially confident and kind of pushy and he really wants to have this affair with her and isn't really thinking very much about her interests or tastes. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is definitely an air of unpleasantness to her. Earlier on in the film, there's a moment where she bumps into some of her younger teenage students, like a young teenage boy student at this sex shop and kind of belittles him and later on it's like oh do you or do you just talk with your friends about how women are bitches and you're just a bunch of pigs and all this stuff and so she's got this in her mind when she just has exactly the same dynamic play out with this young man who 
once he actually understands the full range of what she wants from him, which is, you know, to be dominated and kind of brutalized, he is just completely openly disgusted with her. And there's just this interesting kind of question of under other circumstances, if they'd fully talked this out, she would be thrilled to have him call her disgusting and repulsive. But because he's doing it genuinely, it adds this air of like vulnerability and toxicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting element to their dynamic. And because the way that she is the way that she's described what she wants is it's not like a kind of general thing where she's like, oh, I want to get beaten up or I want to get like hit over the face or something. It's like a very, very specific, almost like she's written a script of it. And you can tell her when he's saying that he's disgusted, she's not just like ashamed, but there's also a kind of almost like a disappointment that he's getting it wrong, which is like the same as when she'd be disappointed when he was getting the not applying himself to Schubert, as she (laughs) says (laughs) earlier in the film. It's kind of all these different layers of like control. And like you said earlier, there's like this very segmented way of who's dominating who in her life, her personal life. Like she is the controlling teacher and she is being controlled by her mother but in this in this environment in this relationship in inverted commas we're not sure like she can't get control because she can't get him I looked back on my letterbox review the last time I watched this and I just said Isabel Huppert power bottom icon (laughs) (laughs) and I think she wants to be a power bottom icon and there's also an interesting thing about age there because it's like it's kind of implied through a performance more than anything else and through the kind of like her still living with her mother that she probably hasn't had that much sexual experience and he's definitely more sexually experienced than her. That's kind of what's implied anyway. And so she's almost stuck in a kind of like teenage, I mean a very warped teenage fantasy, but like that kind of fantasy life about that sex is a fantasy and it's she's found out about it in all these different scenarios that she's been in and now she's trying to apply it to life whereas he's kind of like oh well yeah I mean you just have to infer because like you really don't know anything about kind of her backstory yeah that way of interpreting like a piece of literature like I've not read the books I don't know how much we would learn from that but yeah it's this this very kind of psychological interpretation of why someone would be into these fetishes and also like you can Mm -hmm. tell that she's had a lot of time to germinate all of her ideas about like what she wants and does and all her kind of paraphilias and habits that are often kind of self-harming literally or figuratively it always like makes me like just slightly bored and annoyed when like there's so much pop culture that kind of has the aesthetics of like BDSM stuff going on and I'm like well what's the point if you're not like digging into people's psychological reasons for doing this it's it's not interesting you know yeah and in the way that you were saying about how it kind of flips those aesthetics that the Duke of Burgundy and and other films like that tease out the sensuality and of it in that similar way there's a scene which is very Hanukkah where she's she's got all of her sexual paraphernalia and she's like taking it out and like laying it down and it's so like the carpet's a bit shit yeah it's like she's got just this, this not very nice room. apartment like you it's yeah. like one of these Viennese <laughs> apartments but not one that's been done up so she just got yeah, yeah. ugly sort of late 20th century clapboard furniture and a cardboard <laughs> box with like a 
rubber hood in it and stuff. And he's just like, what the fuck is this? What the fuck is happening? Also, another moment that I thought was really funny that I'd never noticed before was, again, this is the tiny comic in the tragic comic, but whenever there's like a shot of when he's reading the the letter and it's a shot behind him and you can see how tiny the writing is on the on the letter that she's written and it's just this like really sad like you can tell how long it is how long this letter is and how much detail there is in it and she's self-conscious about it because she apologizes she's all like oh i'm a piano teacher i'm not a poet this sort of thing so Mm -hmm. there's this real like like you said kind of immaturity and girlishness to that sequence Mm -hmm. and also one thing i immediately picked up on because the costumes are clearly so so clearly going for one specific thing is that mm-hmm. after being really frumpy for the first section, after they have their first real encounter together, she immediately dresses in a more colourful manner. Yeah. And one of the major conflicts between her and her mother is that her mum keeps a lot of control and surveillance over their finances and punishes her when she buys, honestly, not a very dramatic dress from the department store. <laughs> Just like, it's like a, a beige floral dress. But then... She has this sort of flowering where she wears this peachish sort of red outfit and a red hat and more lipstick rather than wearing kind of no makeup at all. Because this is a movie where I was like, oh, I hadn't really clocked that Isabel has really freckly skin because she's so yeah, freckly. Yeah, she's yeah. not wearing makeup at this. And there's this yeah. almost sort of translucent fairness to her. But yeah, she does have this like blush of romance in this completely unromantic relationship where they're both telling each other, I love you. And it's like, you literally have not had a conversation and you're just like yeah. grappling with each other <laughs> in horrible grey rooms. <laughs> it's so bleak. But um, going back to what you were saying about her freckles, it's one of the most convincing kind of dressing down of a female actor that I've seen. Last week I went to see the film Reality, which isn't very good, with uh, Sydney Sweeney, who is obviously incredibly hot, like massive boobs, like really just like blonde, like gorgeous. Famed sex symbol, yeah. (laughs) Famed sex symbol. And it's just really distracting how they've like put a sports bar on her and like given her like less makeup. And it's like, you're not fooling anybody. But obviously Isabel Huppert is a different kind of gorgeous. But again, you see her on like her Instagram and she's posting like extremely glamorous photos of her like in Balenciaga campaigns and like, you know, wearing like gorgeous clothes and lipstick and like big sunglasses and stuff looking very much like the kind of French icon that she is. And in this, it's like wow, this is convincingly from... You I mean, are convincingly so from So there was me. two things that really jumped out to me. One of which is hair texture. Because she has this like mm-hmm. kind of unshiny and aggressively beige hair in this. Mm-hmm. Which is just like... It's first of all very kind of... It feels very 2001, but not in the sense that it's on trend <laughs> in 2001. It's what someone yeah. who's not trendy in 2001 would have. <laughs> yes, and also the other thing is that she has this very skinny, narrow-shouldered frame. And obviously... Mm-hmm. The entirety of film history is all about like dressing thin women in a way that's like, isn't it great how thin this person is? But in reality, Mm. if you see like a middle-aged, really skinny woman with narrow shoulders and she's wearing a cardigan, that's not perceived as a sign of beauty. That's just like a little scarecrow lady, which is kind of what she looks like because they put her in a middle-aged person cardigan outfit. Apparently a big thing in the book, because I read a couple of interviews with Hanukkah and he was talking about like in the original novel, because it's set in a particular time, all of the outfits are really based around what the author herself experienced when she was at 
music school because she studied music and this is like oh yeah all these teachers would be wearing these specific Burberry coats and pleated skirts at the Viennese schools (laughs) (laughs) I love that detail but yeah I'm glad that you kind of picked up on the cost as I knew you would obviously it's your specialism Uh, I really love the costumes as well my favorite costume moment is when she's like dressed up for this recital where she first meets the guy and she's wearing this absolutely saccharine pale baby blue cardigan that's that kind of and I can't touch wool anyway like a sensory thing but it's that kind of like really fluffy wool that just puts my teeth on edge and it's such a like again it's girlish but it's also very it's that very kind of like baby and middle-aged kind of yeah and crucially you see her wearing that when after she's done her little recital at this private concert her mum comes up to her and puts it over her shoulders because her mum is like always fluttering around her creepily trying to like spy on her all the time. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of the moment when the abuse and the arguments between them turns into Erica pouncing on her mum in more of a kind of sexual way? Yeah, she like tries to kiss her mother and is sort of grappling with her in this shared bed they have. I mean, it's really unsettling. It's one of those moments where it definitely makes you think or made me think maybe the kind of the foundation of a lot of her behavior is some kind of childhood trauma because Mm -hmm. like all of her wires are crossed in terms of what's appropriate behavior. And because she's never talking about sex with anyone, like everything Mm -hmm. is completely couched in shame. And also she's in this relationship with her mother where it's like one of those toxic parent-child dynamics where it's almost mirroring an abusive marriage. Mm -hmm, Because like her mom talks a bit about how She'd had this obviously very un- like unhappy marriage to Erica's father, who was then institutionalized. And there's this kind of suggestion that the mother had just like wasted her life by being married to this man and then mm-hmm. was trying to live out her life like a stage parent by pressuring her kid to be this great pianist. And obviously Erica yeah. loves the piano. And but we see these scenes where she the mother is sort of being really just obsessive and like, you know, pecking over her to prepare for her concerts and that sort of thing. And it's like, well, this woman is like 40, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the part like right at the end where she's filling in for a student, which she's set up herself because she injures this student because she sees this girl talking to her paramour and injures her by crushing up some glass and putting it in her coat pocket. Incredible detail. It's so brilliant. And the scene where she does that is just... It's exceptional. But this then leads to her kind of filling in in the conservatory that she teaches at, at their concert. And the mother of the student that she injures is talking to her mother and is like, oh, you must be so proud of uh, your daughter. And she goes, why? It's just a school concert. <laughs> and it's like, it's brutal. So brutal. It's so brutal. <laughs> yeah, stuff like crushing up a piece of glass to hide in the student's pocket or like a middle-aged teacher spying on people having sex in cars and pissing is why we need European art house cinema. Because we need, we need deeply original uh, <laughs> kind of ways of people being fucked up that you could never really dream up on your own. And it's like, thank you. We've got that all here. We've got an incredible actress of a certain age to deliver that to us. To really commit <laughs> to that as well. It's such a perfect match. And I, this is why I was disappointed by the last Hanukkah film, I think, as well, because... Isabel Huppert's in that as well. And it's more of an ensemble piece. And I think one of the reasons why I don't like it that much, the film Happy End, is because nobody is really given enough time or material to kind of commit to anything, really. It's not really much of anything. But I just want another shot of Hanukkah and Huppert just like, 
being fucked up together. <laughs> Shall we talk about the music? Yes. Another element that I was really wanting your take on. <laughs> so in one of the interviews I read with the director, there's this great quote about his general view of music, which was interesting to me as someone who's never seen any of his other films. He said, I'm of the opinion that film music has no place in movies because 99% of its function is to compensate for a deficit in the suspense or excitement. Emotions which are not created through the plot or action, the cinematography or by the actors, is then produced with a musical sauce underneath everything. That's why there's no music in my films, except when it appears in the story. And I was like, this is really rounding out my uh, view of him as someone who is just <laughs> sounds absolutely terrifying to work with and spend time with and is rigidly attached to realism and psychological substance. Yeah. You know, I think it might have been the same interview where he was talking about how he doesn't view any sort of genre work as art and not genre as in science fiction, genre as in a drama, you know. <laughs> It's like anything that's not unbelievably hard-hitting, intense psychological realism. He's just like, no, none of this romance. And it's like, okay. Again, I'm just like so glad that someone like this exists. Yes. <laughs> I love Michael Haneke's films and I don't watch them often, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but every time I watch one, I'm like, thank God you exist to have these convictions. <laughs> that not everybody should have <laughs> but I'm glad you have them and he has people like Isabelle Huppert to work with who is also yeah. just like this but um, as a fan of classical music obviously I really enjoyed the setting here I was quite annoyed with myself because recently I started reading a book that's literally about the history of Viennese classical music but I'm at the beginning, so I've not reached the part that's oh, okay. like historically relevant to this. Because I was like, oh, I'm still in like, you know, the 17th century. <laughs> and this is very much rooted in the Romantic era, which is the 19th century. Mm -hmm. To give a very short explanation, the Romantic era is when you start to get a lot of very emotionally complex and symbolic music rather than sort of more mathematical music and music that's more to do with religion. So in Europe and particularly Vienna, which was this hotbed of, of kind of musical inventiveness at the time, you had people like Schumann and Schubert who are the two main composers involved in this film composing this music, which is kind of telling a story or painting a picture and has extraordinarily precise instructions for how the artist is meant to interpret them. So like, obviously there's a lot of the musician's personal emotion is going into it, but also there's lots of instructions on like, you know, the intonation and the volume and the tone of each note and that sort of thing. And that really ties into the way that Erica teaches because you see how much precision goes into the way she's instructing her pupils and how frustrated she is when they don't understand it. And I think one of the conflicts in this story is that the student who she ends up sabotaging, Anna, who is clearly quite like an emotionally vulnerable and immature teenager, you know, in her mid-teens, her main role in this is to accompany another young student who is a singer in some of Schubert's very famous song cycles. So there's this song cycle he wrote when he was dying of syphilis. And um, I'm not particularly familiar with it, but it's very famous and it's very famously tragic and intense and all about death and suffering. And there's absolutely no chance that teenage Anna can understand this in any meaningful way, <laughs> whereas Erica can. And I think that's the mm -hmm. subtext of why she's so incredibly critical of her students' ability to do this. And also, mm -hmm. unlike just being 
a quote-unquote accompanist to the singer, I'm pretty sure that one of the key elements of this song cycle is that it's it's like a true duet, so you actually have to have a relationship with your partner. And this is just two students who've been sort of glommed together. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that context about that song cycle, but that's really interesting. And again, kind of like brings in more layers of these ideas of like who is more experienced, who has more knowledge of the world, who has this kind of emotional knowledge and about bringing that kind of emotional knowledge and experience to whether it's relationships, sexual relationships, music, how that is applied to all that different stuff. Yeah, and there's also this like more direct relevance of Schumann who they actually acknowledge in the first conversation that the main couple have together at this little recital, which in itself is a really funny location because you Mm -hmm. see the kind of the reality of modern day Vienna and the reality of her life, which is all drudgery. But then this little recital is this, it's almost like cosplay or something. It's this real throwback (laughs) because it's this very wealthy couple who have this collection of vintage instruments that are just kept in the background as collector's items. And they're clearly Mm -hmm. trying to copy the way that this sort of recital would have been 200 years ago whereas this little private event but the hostess is sort of mostly talking about the snacks and people aren't having meaningful (laughs) conversations I was like oh this is very funny and sort of twee and clearly frustrating (laughs) for Erica if she's like a very serious Mm. artist but also it's the only place she gets to express that art in a meaningful way but Mm -hmm. when she first talks to Walter at this thing they're kind of talking about Schumann's mental health issues because he had bipolar mm. disorder. I think he also had syphilis. I think they both had syphilis. Everyone did at this point. Everyone had syphilis. <laughs> but like she mentions that he composed the piece of music that either she or Walter played, I don't remember, during what she describes as like the twilight of his mental health issues. So like when he was kind of cognizant of the fact that he was going mad and was having a breakdown, but like wasn't able to stop it. And that mm. to me at the end of the film, when I was thinking of that, I was like, obviously at the time you're tying it into the fact that you know that Erica's father had serious mental issues. But then mm-hmm. also it's like, by the end, you're like, well, this whole film is about her in her yeah. twilight because she's been having a breakdown. Yeah. Should we kind of talk a bit about the, the kind of ending we of the film? We should, yes. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> There's two big kind of crescendos, I guess, at the end. One of which is her student, the guy who she's having... The affair with bursts into a home and starts kind of doing all the things to her that she's been asking for, but in this way that, again, is very not controlled, is very, isn't kind of negotiated and feels more like an attack on her. He also locks her mother into the bedroom and there's a very, there's a very interesting moment where he says that there's a lock on the mother's bedroom which of course she sleeps in as well and her room as well which she doesn't sleep in but an interesting insight into the dynamic there then he rapes her in a scene where the camera is again it's one of those really long shots that Hanukkah does where the camera is on her during this full five minute scene which is obviously very harrowing but it's it's very interesting because It's the most harrowing, horrible bit of the film, but it's the bit where he's trying to be gentle with her, but she's telling him to stop, but he's kind of kissing her in this like way that he perceives as a kind of, and you might see out of context as a kind of gentle way. It's very difficult to watch in that way and and very telling about the kind of 
again the dynamic between these two and then he kind of like leaves her on the floor and you see her in the aftermath of that and then at the very end she in the kind of last few minutes of the film she turns up to the concert that she is playing at stepping in for the student and uh, everybody kind of files in to the auditorium past her she's got a very kind of steely kind of deadpan look on her face whenever people come up to her and then she gets a kitchen knife out of her bag and stabs herself in the heart and then you see the kind of blood coming out onto her shirt and she walks out of the building and you see her walk away and then that's the end of the film so you don't see anybody reacting to that I think it's a really intriguing end because something like that especially if it's like well we kind of don't know whether it's a suicide or not because you don't know whether she's died or not she does stab herself in the chest but something like that where it's very kind of like a dramatic way to harm yourself you would think would be done in front of somebody but it's kind of suggested that it's when everybody has gone into the room so she's alone and then walks away so it's like such an enigmatic ending yeah and there's such an interesting contrast between the fact that it's so clearly premeditated because she's brought this knife and it's like well Actually, maybe it was premeditated murder. Maybe she was planning on stabbing him or something. Mm -hmm. But then she ends up stabbing herself. And like you say, Mm -hmm. there's always been this strange relationship between all of her eccentric and uh, like kind of masochistic behaviors and other people. Because obviously she's Mm -hmm. keeping her self-harm really secret. She's keeping a lot of her sexual activity secret. But some of them involve intentionally humiliating herself in public. So obviously when she's Mm -hmm. voyeuristically watching people have sex she gets caught and like, well, you were risking that on purpose. And then when she's at this sex shop, there's all these guys who are sort of looking at her like, what the fuck's this woman doing here? When she's queuing up to go into one of the booths. I can't believe I forgot to mention that like when she's watching this porn in the booth, she like takes the used tissues that guys oh have been jerking God. off into and like <laughs> sniffs them when I was like, what a detail. Another one to add to the list of thank God for European art Truly. filmmakers. I was just like, wow. <laughs> but yeah, no, there is this total sense of, mystery and just as like a note on like the scene before that the sex scene slash rape scene the problem with walter is that he's between these two poles that are like not the correct zones for her because Mm -hmm. he basically just wants to get laid like he says he's in love with her we can't know how much that that's basically just like a sexual obsession he has with her and also he's like 22 but like he wants to have sex with her no matter what so he's kind of going along with this Mm-hmm. So there is that like gentleness element where it's like he's used to just having quote unquote normal sex. But at the same yeah. time, there's a sense of real rage and abusiveness to him where it's like yeah. the, when he's acting out toward her, kind of seems like he's probably had a couple of drinks as well. Like he's yeah. not sober and he is just being completely uncontrolled toward her. So like none of this actually resembles a healthy or well thought out relationship. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like it's got all these different elements to it that maybe in a different context or maybe if he wasn't it's all underlined with this kind of abusive nature but it's taking all these other elements that could work in a different context or in a different mindset or something like that it's really creepily done and really effective and I'm usually like if there's a rape scene in something I'm like I don't need to see that but this is an example of when it is well utilized and when like maybe you do need to see this 
But also that kind of discourse is not happening around this kind of film because most people are not watching this kind of film. So. No. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listeners, please tell me your thoughts on this movie if you watched it for the podcast. Oh my God, definitely. I really would like to know. This reminds me also of something that my friend Chris told me and he's a fellow, Isabel Huperstan, um, and also loves the piano teacher and he's also a music teacher himself and he got given a poster, like a, a lobby poster of the piano teacher for his birthday from his partner or something and um, he was going to put it up in his studio (laughs) (laughs) but then he was like I was like oh that'd be so funny and then I was like oh did you do it and he was like no I was really worried about like parents googling what it was or like (laughs) I mean honestly before you suggested this episode I didn't know what it was about (laughs) it could be a lovely film the piano teacher I mean, you would take literally every element of this film and make it into like a cool, sexy, romantic thriller. And it's like, absolutely not. This is going to be unpleasant (laughs) from start to finish. (laughs) Which is like every Michael Haneke film. It's just, it's really funny. Like when you were talking about like the kind of horrible settings of it and stuff, that's very much a Haneke thing. Well, I think like probably the film that is most likely to have had a mainstream audience is Funny Games because it's classified as a horror Mm. movie. And like, yeah, I've never yeah, watched yeah. it because I'm like, I know this isn't going to be a normal horror movie because I watch every horror <laughs> film. But like whenever yeah. you're looking at like list of recommendations on Letterboxd or whatever, I'll see like listed funny games, films by Lars von Trier. And I'm like, those are not horror movies. Okay. No. Those are like <laughs> fucked up dramas. <laughs> They're like actual horror as in yeah. like a, the horror of life. The one that has haunted me the most that I watched in lockdown for some fucking reason (laughs) was uh, his first film The Seventh Continent I only watched it because it was going off Criterion Channel I was like oh that's a Hanukkah that you don't often see so I'll have to watch it and it's this film about a family who it's over like three days they destroy all their possessions and then all are in like this suicide pact and it's just like not explained and it's so horrible (laughs) but it's like it is seared onto my brain absolutely he he simply loves an intriguing family it's the vibe i get and to have things happen and in the end it's like well it's chaos baby it doesn't matter why this happened. <laughs> All right. So next up on the schedule, there is an episode with Stefan about The Exorcist, which we pushed back a couple of weeks so we could do Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. So if you've not heard that, go back. Also on Patreon, uh, we recently did an episode on Succession with Morgan. So you can go listen to that. Ooh. Chatting about the whole series and particularly the final season and the finale. Um, But next with Claire, we have decided to do the 1932 pre-code film Shanghai Express by Josef von Sternberg. And um, the star is Marlene Dietrich, but it is also probably Anna May Wong's most famous film. Uh, The first Chinese-American movie star had an absolutely fascinating career through silent film and sound movies. And this movie is just, it's a gorgeous classic. It's really beautiful to watch. It's really compelling. It is only 80 minutes long and I believe you can watch it for free on the Internet Archive. And it's about a group of train passengers who are held hostage during the Chinese Civil War in the 1930s. So, great movie. absolutely love a glamorous train film. Yes. 1930s to the 50s understood that 
trains were a 100% crucial part of romance and mysteries. Yes. And that is a lesson that Bollywood still continues to this day and American <laughs> cinema has completely forgotten because no one takes yeah. the train anymore due to poor public funding. So that is how that is how the Reagan era economics have damaged American romance. I should really write a paper about this. Oh my god, you should. I would read that. Um, but yeah, Shanghai Express, check that one out. Iconic classic. Yeah, so anyway, uh, Claire, where can people find you? They can find me uh, on Letterboxd at Claire Biddles. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Ms. Claire Biddles. Cool, you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor and on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And I've just started a Blue Sky account. Um, we'll see how that's going by the time this episode goes up. <laughs> And you can find, obviously, overinvestedpodcast.com is where you'll find the show notes for this, including links to interviews and things. And overinvestedpod on Twitter, overinvestedpodcast on Instagram and Tumblr. On Patreon, overinvestedpodcast, where you can listen to all the kind of extra episodes and ongoing content with Morgan. So thanks again for supporting us. Obviously, it's great that people are still subscribing to the Patreon. You're helping fund us along, including our new uh, co-hosts. Um, yeah. All right. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.